and welcome back to the Sophos Naked Security Podcast. I'm Anna Brading and I'm here with Sophos experts Mark Stockley. Hi. Paul Jacklin. Hello, folks. And Peter McKenzie. Hi, everyone. It's episode 20, guys. Double figures. Yes, as Anna said earlier. Oh, I told you not to say that. (laughs) Well, A, it is double figures and B, who cares that it's a multiple of 10? When we've got a power of two, that's when we should get excited. So hang on for the 32th episode, folks. And technically, I didn't say the first double figures. I just said we were in double figures, which is true. So... There. Congratulations. Thank you. Thanks to everyone that's been sharing pictures of their Spotify unwrapped, showing us as their top listened uh, podcast of the year. It's very exciting. Mark, I'll explain that to you later. <laughs> yeah, you, you saw my blank expression. Yeah, I did. Thanks. Yeah. It was confusing. Yeah. We can talk about Instagram and Snapchat and stuff oh, like that. Oh, we spoke about this yesterday. This is the mixtape thing, isn't it? No, it's not a mixtape. I haven't got time to go through this with you now. <laughs> It's basically a highlight of the year, but it shows you the top, or the highlight of your decade, but it shows you your top songs and things you've listened to, top artists and top podcasts. And lots of people have been sending us pictures of theirs showing Naked Security at the top. Still think it sounds like a mixtape. Yes, but it's a mixtape from the whole community of the people who are listening to us. (laughs) Biggest fans. As usual, we've picked the top three stories from the week to discuss on the podcast. So coming up on today's show, Mark talks about open source supply chain madness. Duck tells us if the iPhone 11 is over-tracking us. And Peter's talking about Snatch Ransomware. And talking about ransomware, this week we um, celebrated 30 years of it, didn't we, Duck? Did you sing it a little happy birthday? I almost did by mistake until I realised that would be a bad idea and I don't think you're really supposed to sing Unhappy Birthday because it's meant to be an upbeat song only. Mark, yes, do you want to sing that? I feel like that's what you'd sing anyway. 1989, <laughs> uh, December 1989, Dr Joseph Pop. He'd written a programme that was supposedly would advise you on managing your risk of contracting HIV and what he didn't tell you, except in really tiny print on the back of the envelope in a floppy that he mailed to you, was that uh, if you, you actually had to pay for this and if you didn't pay, after a certain time, he would go take any means to try and get the money out of you. And it was basically like modern ransomware, scrambled your files and said, uh, do send me $378. Yeah. But he had a half-price version as well, didn't he? $189, 189 yeah. um, for one year. Yeah. <laughs> or, or a $378 all-you-can-eat lifetime of your hard disk licence. Wow. But he, didn't, he made you pay later by forcing you through scrambling your files. But the thing that's actually quite unique about that, you've just made me realise. So, yes, so on, if we get the dates right, so December 8th, 1989, is when he started posting 20,000 floppy disks out. So that's when, so it's yesterday, was is it yesterday? Sunday. Sunday, Sunday was the, was first, the When the first stamp was stuck. Yeah, and then so obviously Monday would have been the first sort of people might have started receiving them. Um, it's a stamp is what you put on something that's, <laughs> when it's email but doesn't have the E, yeah. you put a stamp on it. Actually, I've got a question about how they paid. What did they do? Send a cheque? They sent a, uh, was it Banker's Draft You'd to Panama. PC, yeah, PC Cyborg Corporation in Panama. Oh. Yeah. yeah, they had this accommodation <laughs> here, box. Totally no, legit. about saying this. Send bankers yeah. draft to Panama. One one thing <laughs> doesn't say what didn't have Western does it? Union. Yeah. What you just made me realise though is they did include this license agreement that was printed out, came along with it, that said if you use this application, you will owe us the money. So there can't be that many ransomwares out there that have told you in advance to encrypting your files that you will owe them money. Isn't this more like the fleeceware that? 
labs were still yeah, doing yeah, that. Yeah, arguably a little bit. Well, I I think the, the UK courts, the UK law enforcement took the opinion, since most of the victims were in the UK, because he, he got the, the mailing list that he got under false pretenses was, I believe, from a, a, a UK computing magazine. Yeah. So there were people outside the UK did get this. It wasn't just UK stamps that got stuck down. Mm. So it did get all over the world. Uh, but the UK courts figured, you know, you can't do that. You can't have a tiny little thing saying, by the way, if you try this app and then you don't like it, but you don't remove it, then I'm going to, I'm going to basically screw you over and get the money anyway. So he was... He was extradited from the US to the UK to stand trial on charges of extortion. Uh, as I remember, his his trial never completed. He was found to be mentally unfit to be in the UK, I believe, which is just a convenient way of saying, well, we're not going to finish charging you. We're just going to boot you back where you came from. And, uh, you know, went back to the US. He has sub- he, he's no longer with us. Um, he died some years ago. But yeah, he kind of started off this whole scene. And it's interesting, it was actually a a sort of double whammy ransomware. Those people remember the beginnings of modern ransomware. Remember, it it started with ransomware called police locker or lock screen ransomware. It didn't bother scrambling your files. It just tried to keep you out of your computer. And then that was deemed not enough because it was too easy to bypass. So then the crook started scrambling your files. Mm -hmm. And very recently, we saw some ransomware that not only scrambles your files, it also changes your password so you can't log back in. That's not new. That's what Pop did in this very first ransomware. First, it had a lock screen that showed you the license, just showed you the license page. If you got, you know, someone who knew about computers to get you past that, then you found that all your files have been scrambled. And our one of our founders, Dr. Jan Hrushka, was actually uh, one of the, the early people who got into analysing this in the UK and was part of, the, of a whole load of people around the world who published information that explained what what this was, how it worked, and most importantly, that the guy hadn't done the cryptography correctly. Oh, really? You didn't, you didn't need to pay because he had a hardwired password. So basically, once, once experts had figured it out, you could actually decrypt this one for fight. So it's only hit the headlines really in the last sort of what, five to ten years? 2013 is when CryptoLocker came out, and I refer to that as the godfather the of ransomware. The big one. So yeah. what's changed in the last five years then, that, or six? Well, they've, they've said they've got better, basically. Right, um, okay. The really important things probably for the crooks, which is what made it hard for Pop, why he was hardly ever going to succeed. Firstly, the cost for Pop to try and fail was huge. He had to buy and post out 20,000 floppy disks. These days, if you try one ransomware, it's in a flop, then the cost of spamming out the next one is zero. Uh, The second thing, of course, the internet makes it easy for people to get hold of you anonymously to try and pay the money. In the old days, for Pop, you'd have to go to your bank and sit down with your bank manager and explain why you wanted a bankers, a cashier's check to go to Panama. And of course, the third thing that's made a huge difference, cryptocurrency, it kind of makes it easier to pay and to pay in a pseudo-anonymous way. So the crooks can actually collect the money in a way that makes it very hard for anyone to get it back afterwards. Bitcoin is the 21st century banker's draft to Panama. Yeah, basically. I think it was, um, wasn't it the fact that a home user bought 20,000 floppy disks, which was one of the reasons why he got caught. That's my understanding. That that was when the FBI went to investigate, because obviously the UK authorities said, look, this is a big deal. We know the guys in the US look into this for us. These days, it's all the other way around. Everyone gets extradited from the UK to the US on cybercrime charges. This was the other way around. And yeah, that was one of the investigative (laughs) techniques they used. The guy was not known for being involved in shareware or software distribution, and he kind of stood out like a sore thumb. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Whereas, you know, these days, 
sending 20,000 emails yeah. is, is, can be done pseudo-anonymously. It's very hard to track that person I suppose down. the only other option was that he was really diligent at doing backups and nobody's that diligent at doing backups. No. <laughs> so that brings us nicely onto your topic of the week, Peter, from the first ransomware to the latest. You're going to talk to us about Snatch ransomware. Yes, so uh, Sophos has just published an article on Snatch ransomware. This is one we started properly investigating a few weeks back. So um, the... Incident response team were asked to help an organization that had an attacker on their network. They knew there was something going on. Um, the attacker was moving about across machines, and we found all these interesting files. And then later on, we found the ransomware. Now, the attacker hadn't deployed the ransomware. They downloaded it to the machines. They hadn't got to the point where they were deploying it across the thousands of machines. So we intervened and stopped that from happening. So it's another kind of a, a good message in that respect. However, what we discovered was that the people that made this ransomware have also made other tools that are designed for not only keeping their access to machines, but also for stealing data. So the Snatch team as they refer themselves refer to themselves as. Um, as they're unashamedly like a gang. Yes, yeah. Um, so basically, they've been around since, we estimate around summer 2018. And it started as one person, but then he, on Russian hacking forums, started advertising job listings, basically. They were asked to anyone that could do RDP brute forcing, ultra VNC, uh, SQL injection. They were after people like this. They even said, oh, you know, you, we can have, you know, $5,000 a month if you're good at doing RDP or 10000 if you're good with Mimikatz. You know, they were advertising as normal, like a normal job, mm -hmm. basically. So they're, not paying, they're not paying like... Uh, um, bug bounties that do this thing for us and we'll give you five grand. They're actually getting employees who'll sit there and be yeah. right part of the live operation. They're recruiting people into their gang. Yeah. And um, their, their operations centre. Yeah, exactly. Crikey. And um, so we looked at um, everything they were doing. And yes, they have a bit of a reputation of stealing data that can then be used almost as a blackmail or extortion once they launch the ransomware to help encourage the victim to pay the ransom. So we found all that very interesting anyway, and that's um, what led to us starting to write the article. But then we found these other files, which turns out to be the ransomware, which they refer to as Snatch as well. And that has a very interesting, and we believe the first time we've ever seen this in a ransomware, it runs on a normal Windows machine, and the first thing it does is checks if that machine is in Windows safe mode. If it isn't, it adds some registry keys, creates a service that will automatically load in safe mode, and then it reboots the machine into safe mode. All this takes about a second. Right. Machine so reboots. safe mode is what a... Well, if you're at home, you, you usually wouldn't need it, but it's kind of a troubleshooting thing, isn't it, that yeah. you, you do a special reboot sequence, press the right keys, yeah. and then your system starts up with, with all the things that are usually there to protect you kind of stripped out... Yeah. So that when you troubleshoot, you've got fewer things intervening. Anyone using a Windows computer for long enough has seen Windows safe mode because <laughs> <laughs> they've held down the power button or they, you know, they've done something and Windows has started up saying, hey, stuff happened, do you want to go into safe mode? So it's meant to be for debugging, you know, as you say, hardly anything loads in safe mode. You're meant to be there to be able to fix what's ever wrong, then go back up into normal mode. Um, so the idea that a malware of any type or ransomware can purposely 
have itself automatically start in safe mode and then reboot your machine into the safe mode so it can then start encrypting is, as I said, we've never seen that before. Doesn't sound very safe. No, it's the exact no. opposite of what safe mode so is So why meant to are they for. doing that? So, uh, as I said, not many things load in safe mode. This yeah. includes most antivirus protection. Right, I see. So, I mean, it may be that they can just do other things quicker if there's other things load aren't loaded. But I'd imagine also it would stop things like data. if you've got a database server, that won't load. If you've got a mail server, a web server. So there'll be a whole load of files that might otherwise be in yeah. use that will be unlocked. So in theory, it should also give them a bigger reach to go and scramble yeah. more stuff. Think of like the other ransomware like Ryok or Megacortex. They purposely go and disable SQL and exchange, do all these things first to make sure they can encrypt them. Well, so in safe mode. Well, yeah, I mean... <laughs> Arguably, so yeah, so um, they still they you do they need to be domain admins first to be able to yes. do this, right? So this ransomware is a sort of a post compromise ransomware. They already have to have admin on the box so that they can write the registry keys, create the services, do all this kind of stuff, and then yeah, it reboots, immediately starts encrypting, leaves you the ransom note, all this kind of stuff. How much do they want? Um, f so we reached out to uh, another company called Coveware, who uh, they handle negotiations with ransomware groups, basically. And they have dealt with Snatch 12 times um, in the last sort of six months. And the ranges are relatively small. I think um, a couple of thousand dollars. I say relatively small, of course. That yes. depends on <laughs> your point of view, but compared to Riot charging like five million. But yeah, so a couple of thousand up to about 35,000. However, oh, a discount. Yeah. It sounds terrible to well, get only 35,000. They do give a discount if you pay within, I think, the first 48 hours. Um, it's half what it would be after that. Right. Um, but the trend Black is the Friday, amounts. Yeah. Cyber Monday. <laughs> yeah, the, oh, the, dear. The trend is the amounts Holy. are going up and the uh, victims are getting to be bigger and bigger organisations as well. So from what we've seen and some of the other information that we haven't published yet because we are planning a second article, um, this is a group that is clearly developing their skills mm. and improving what they do. So expect to hear more from them soon. So you said at the beginning, in, in the case where you discovered it, um, the company, the victim became aware that their network was compromised and you were in there trying to see what had happened. So what were they doing? Why didn't they just run the ransomware straight away? What were they doing on the network mm. that, that created that window? Well, it's, it's similar to the other big groups. That they, you know, you can get into a network and you have access to maybe one machine. Well, uh -huh. obviously, you understand that's maybe one end user machine's not going to really encourage someone to pay $5 million or whatever it may be. So you need to spend a bit of time getting domain admin passwords, yeah. working out their network infrastructure, finding out how they do backups. So on one of the victims that we spoke to, um, they confirmed that the attackers manually deleted their backups on their NAS drives before launching the ransomware. Mm. So you, can, you can't do that unless you have an understanding of the environment you're in. And that takes a bit of time. And these snatch guys sounds like they, the ransomware is just what they do when they've, they've done everything else they want to do because they go after your data first. Exactly, yeah. So there's been, so not coming from our research, but other people that have researched them um, over 2019, there was a breach on a company called CityComp. Um, they did have the ransomware, but apparently 513 gig of data was stolen from them reportedly but um and then other companies they've hit they've also taken gigabytes of data from them so, so yeah. if you've got ransomware on your machine then if you find it what should you do well 
first of all, it's not 2013 anymore. If you've got ransom on your machine, <laughs> the question isn't what do I do now? Is well, it's also what happened before the ransomware launched. Yeah. Is this a one-time thing? Is this the you know my machine got encrypted? That's it. Or have the attackers actually been exfiltrating data for the last month from my network? Mm. So it's got a lot more complicated now, unfortunately. So what? And so say they have worked that out. Then what do they do? Like what's? Well, that's. I mean, it requires a lot of investigation. They should contact the uh, incident response team at Sophos. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to avoid saying that. But, I mean, obviously, talk to you. Um, they incident should just, response they teams, forensic. Well, yeah, that's one way, I suppose. Um, there's forensic. Um, companies that will go in and help you understand what happened. It's very difficult to understand what happened, especially over a long period of time mm -hmm. when logs can get overwritten and, uh, you know, attackers quite often wipe logs to make it harder for you. But um, either your own security team, if you've got one, should look into this. If you need help, then you should reach out to a third party, yeah. So assume you're compromised, I suppose. If you Assume you're compromised, especially with the various GDPR and other rules out there nowadays. You know, assume you're compromised and see if you can prove otherwise. So how can people protect themselves against ransomware? They can listen to episode 19 <laughs> of the Naked <laughs> Security yeah. Podcast last week where we um, we covered this. Get to more double fingers. <laughs> yeah. um, there's no simple answer, basically. I think you made a good point last in that episode, Peter, by saying, you know, there are all these super fancy things you can do and you may want to do those, yeah. but there's no point in doing that until you've got the basics right. Yeah. Yeah. Passwords, 2FA, patching and all of that stuff. Get the basics right, offline backup, and then you can start thinking about how you can deal with the less likely event that the crooks might get in at all. Yeah, there's absolutely no point going by in the latest military technology if you've got no one that can fly it or whatever. You know, you've got to get the basics. Thanks, Peter. Sorry. I was trying to think of a witty answer to that, but I couldn't. I'm all out. <laughs> Double figures. <laughs> Double, <laughs> Double figures. Doug. Hello, um, Anna. I've, I'm sure you've noticed on my desk, but I have got a new iPhone 11 Pro. Yeah, I know. I, you didn't exciting. need to say it was the Pro because I noticed the three lenses. I know. Two lenses not good enough. No. Actually, I'm, that is why. That is one of the main reasons I got it. And also because just because well, I'm a massive fan. Well, you wanted a really girl. ugly phone. <laughs> Have you not seen my lovely case? I think, A, they look <laughs> cool. Beautiful. We, we, we did a tweet. Well, I did a tweet last week with my iPhone 6 Plus of our little rain, of our illuminated reindeer grazing after yeah. dark. And everyone said, oh, that's cute. And Alice couldn't resist going out and taking the same shot the next day with her iPhone 11. And it literally night and day. So, yeah, I... I I'm not surprised he went for the three lens I one. got the um, iPhone 11 Pro <laughs> and then Alice had to one-up me and get the Pro, whatever it is, the massive one, but she could, she's realised she can't hold it in only one hand. <laughs> so I'm an Android and would never touch an iPhone, <sighs> but what are the three cameras for? Is it one for HD, one for night vision, one for tracking you? Is oh. that... Is that ha, ha, ha. Uh, yes, there was a huge story all over the media recently about, you know, is the iPhone 11 more aggressive at tracking? In particular, can it track you even if you've turned tracking off compared to other iPhones? And that wasn't just a story that started as a rumour on Facebook. It wasn't one of those interstitial ads on websites where it goes, one hit this one reason why you should be scared of the new whatever it is phone. It was none other than uh, well-known 
uh, investigative cybersecurity journalist Brian Krebs, and he wrote an article which it wasn't. It, there was no nothing inflammatory in the title. It was quite balanced. He said the iPhone 11 Pro's location data puzzler. That was the title of the article. And basically, what he noticed, I assume he just got his new iPhone 11 Pro. He'd had an iPhone 8 before, as as far as we can make out, and he noticed that with no other changes, with the same all other things being equal in terms of location settings, which he thought was off for everything, uh, that the little location arrow that shows that something is accessing your location data on his on the iPhone 11 Pro would nevertheless occasionally appear. And this was a behavior that he'd never seen on the iPhone 8. And he was kind of mystified as to what it was that caused the new phone to do this when the old one hadn't. Because mm, I thought that it was quite good, the controls for tracking your apps before. What's changed now? Well, yes, I like the way Apple does it. And in fact, they introduced a feature which I think Google followed suit shortly afterwards. A good idea that for every app that that wants access to your location, you can set for each app individually. You can choose never, which means it, it can try and access mm. your location. It won't get it. Uh, you can have while using the app, which means that as soon as you put the app in the background or lock your phone, the app can't access your location data. So basically, if you can't see the app, it can't see you. And for things that you do want to run in the background, uh, like, you know, mapping app that will tell you what pop up and tell you when you're at a location, there's an always. And that's for every app. So that interface hasn't changed. I think what confused Brian Krebs, I personally, I thought he got the wrong end of the stick, but I see why he reached this conclusion, is it seems that his practice was he left the master switch location services turned on so the GPS and everything is working. And then for every app in the list, he had it set to never. And you can see why you might infer that if all apps are set to never, then the fact that the master switch mm. is on, in the same way in your home, if you've got the electricity on at the distribution board, but all the light switches in the house are off, you expect the house to be dark and you don't expect lights to pop on unexpectedly. And what surprised him was that the iPhone 8 never, under those circumstances, never showed the arrow and the iPhone 11 Pro sometimes did. What on earth was the difference? And unfortunately, Apple's response it was what I expected, and it proved that you know the, 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 my inference was correct, namely that the main location switch was there to turn off location entirely in case there was something that didn't have its own switch, and that's all Apple told him. He said, "Oh, we don't." They said, "We don't see what the problem is. The master switch is there for any system service that doesn't have its own sub switch." Fair enough. But that still left this open question of, well, why did the location error never appear before? And now it suddenly does. What on earth has changed? Mm. And so it, it, this, this confusion that the same, the same user interface, the same set of switches, I made one assumption about how to read it. And Brian Krebs quite reasonably made a completely different one. And only one of those could be correct. And we still didn't know why, whether it was that that location arrow does appear all the time and he'd never noticed it before, or whether there was something new and freaky about the iPhone 11. Mm. And so that's where it was left for a couple of days. Because I thought Apple was a privacy first company. Well, I think that was the other thing that that was a thing that Brian mentioned in his article. Mm. So, yeah, I think that's what surprised Brian Krebs is that presumably there was a simple explanation for why he was now seeing the arrow and didn't before and just saying, oh, well, that's supposed to happen. I think that's what surprised him. As you say, that Apple, they pride themselves on privacy. Maybe they could have been more forthcoming yeah. in explaining I mean, what went if on. If Brian Krebs gets confused, then obviously yeah. a lot of other people could as well. Mm. Yes. Uh, and it, it, what, it all ended up in an interesting fashion, namely that it seems like both 
Brian Krebs and Apple were both right and wrong, if you like. And so this is more of a kind of uh, sort of social contract problem than a technological one. Eventually, a couple of days later, Apple came back and said, OK, here's, here's why you're seeing it now and why not. Here's why the iPhone 11 comes into the equation and why the behaviour's changed, is there is actually, now we mention it, this super new technological feature in the iPhone 11 called uh, UWB, Ultra Wideband. And it's basically, it's like ad hoc wireless networking. Right. You, know, you can do it with, with AirDrop. You can use either Wi-Fi or Bluetooth. And apparently what UWB does is it uses Wi-Fi technology, but in a slightly different way to normal Wi-Fi. So it uses a very low power so it's not supposed to get in the way of anything else, but uses all the frequencies at the same time. So if you're really close to somebody and you want to send them data, you can, with AirDrop, you know, when you're sending a huge movie, it takes ages on Bluetooth. Mm. The other is it's super duper quick. Now, it turns out that in some countries, apparently, or in some regions, they, the authorities have decided that because there's a risk of interference, UWB is actually not allowed by default. So what Apple has done is they have built a feature into the phone so that they can turn uwb on um and if you've got if you've got location settings on because then occasionally they can peek at your location and make sure you haven't gone to one of the places where uwb needs to be turned off so the the motivation behind this was great but it raises the question why on earth didn't apple just mention this Mm. and add a switch saying uwb allow access to location never when using app always, and then put a note in there saying, note, if you disallow access to, for UWB needs location access to work for mm. regulatory reasons, then while he was investigating this, he would have come across the answer himself. Mm. And it turns out that apparently Apple has now said, oh, by the way, we are going to put that switch in because now you mention it, it seems like a very good idea. Now so, it's the headlines. <laughs> yeah, maybe they should have yeah, had that very now good we've been idea. Caught. Hang on. <laughs> I can Hello, see the Mark. cogs turning. Yeah. If Apple wanted to track you secretly, Mm. Apple, who makes the phone and controls the software on the phone and the little location icon that comes on when your location is being tracked, Mm. surely if they wanted to secretly track you, they would just make the icon not appear. Or would they? Hang on. (laughs) To be fair, Brian, there was no point... There was nothing in what Krebs said that made that that conspiracy theoretical suggestion. Wasn't it more about no. leaking That's why he said the me. location data puzzler. There's yeah. been a change. I'm surprised that Apple didn't make it clear to manage my expectations. So I think that's really what this is about. You're quite right. If Apple secretly wanted to track you, they would do it secretly. Except this gives them deniability. Um, well, OK. <laughs> now we've got the conspiracy, conspiracy theory. theory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're all wearing the silver hands. Thing they want you to believe. Oh. Yeah, no one's ever heard of that. No. So, Doug, what should iPhone 11 users do then? What, how, how should they be setting their phone? Switch to Android. Yeah, because that yeah. not as cool. <laughs> Solve every one now, problem. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's yeah. quite good. Talk because to me about the nice thing about power. Android is every so often all the good things that Apple do get copied into it. No, I'm kidding. Uh, basically, it's not really what it's not it's not really what iPhone users can do. You know, if you want to, if you like giving apps access to your location, that is your choice. My feeling that this is more of a kind of teachable moment for people who are designing software that has part of its interface that deals with security and privacy settings. And tip number one is that 
make sure that when you're designing the way that people control access to privacy settings, that there is, don't leave any room for ambiguity. Uh, the second thing is, if there is a change like this one that you can easily see is likely to confuse people, like suddenly you will show up this location icon that might cause even Brian Krebs to go, whoa, wait a minute, that's not supposed to happen. Make that clear, document that clearly. That wouldn't have been hard for Apple and they could even have made mention of it given that this UWB is an important new feature on the location settings page. Mark? Is it uh, me? Is it me? It is you. It's you. Okay. Python developers have fallen victim to malicious software libraries again, haven't they? Uh, yeah, they have some. Not many. Oh. But uh, this is a teachable moment. Oh, okay. So, and also, this is a bit of a hobby horse for me. So bear with me. <laughs> is a Go hobby horse, it. that's like a soapbox, only... only the, it's like a soapbox, but it's got a horse's head. <laughs> well, mine's got a horse's head. More friendly. And a megaphone. Oh, right. So you go, instead of standing still, you go galloping around. Because it is quite a big deal, this, isn't it? <laughs> What's happened? It's very important that we get this stuff right. Yeah. So anyway, the story concerns the PyPy repository, or the PyP repository. Duck, can we have a ruling on how that's said? It's the I is for installer, not, not wine staller. So it's PyP. I don't care what the people who invented it <laughs> think. It's PyP. We're going to call it PyP. So this was about some malware on the PyP repository. So it was discovered on the 1st of December by Lucas Martini. Uh, Lucas notices that something isn't right with the Python 3-date-util package. Um, and it turns out that that is one of two packages in the repository that is doing something it shouldn't do. Um, so PyP is a, is a software repository, so you can write uh, open source Python code, Python libraries, mm. and upload them to that repository and make them available to all the other Python developers in the world. So if you're, uh, if you're creating a Python project and you want to be able to, uh, you want to use a web framework or you want to do some machine learning or you want to ma manipulate some dates, rather than write the code yourself, you can pull the code down from this uh, Python repository. And unfortunately... Uh, a few days up to uh, before December the 1st, if you had pulled down the Python 3 date util utility, you would have had a bit of malware, which itself was pulling in another package, uh, which was called Jellyfish. Um, and it... What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> Don't judge a book by its cover. In this case, actually, the cover... So I said it was called Jellyfish, but it's actually... It was called Jellyfish. Oh. So there is a real Python package called Jellyfish, and there is a fake one ah, which has got a capital I instead of one of the L's. Like our typo squatting in the other episode. Yeah. It is. It mm. is exactly typo squatting. Which episode, Peter? 18. So good. Well done. So good. I forget anything as soon as I leave the door. <laughs> leave the, room. Leave the door. Leave Double the figures. <laughs> so, to recap, continue. If you downloaded the Python 3 date util utility, the Python 3 date util utility would then pull in the fake version of Jellyfish, mm -hmm. and the fake version of Jellyfish would then pull some code off the internet, and that code would go rummaging around in your home directory, your downloads directory, um, and it would be and your documents directory, and it was looking for uh, uh, whatever files that you had in there, and it was trying to steal SSH and GPG keys, right. so things that might give the attacker access to your computer and in access to encrypted files. And almost certainly, or very likely, access to your own Python repository where you were uploading the utilities you were working on <laughs> for yes. the next guy. <laughs> 
So has it been removed now? Yeah, the Python security team uh, whipped them off the repository nice and quick. Um, but there are some things that you need to be aware of if you're a Python user. So the first one is the Python 3 date util utility is... Uh, it's basically a typo squatting attempt against something called Python dash date util. So if you got the Python 3 dash date util from Pypy, mm. then you've got the bad one. And you can figure out if you've got the bad one by doing pip freeze. So you go to your command line, you use the pip utility, you type pip freeze, and that'll tell you what packages you've downloaded and installed from Pypy. And if that includes Python 3 dash date util, then you've got the bad one, get rid of it get the real one it's the one with the three in the name isn't it um yes mm. it is unfortunately there are there are other ways of getting python code so if you use various uh, linux distributions you might not get your python code from pipey you might actually get it using your linux uh the distributions package manager and in that case you may actually have a package called python 3 date util that is the real deal right <laughs> because they use slightly different uh, naming schemes and there is a big transition going on from Python 2 to Python 3, and one of the ways that they let you know that you've got the right thing... Is, is this by... the same Linux that never gets malware? <laughs> <laughs> no, it must be a different one. So, if you're using pip, look for Python 3-dateutil, but if you don't use pip and you've got Python 3-dateutil, then you're OK. OK. Yeah. So malicious attacks on open source repositories aren't exactly new, though, are they? No, they're not. And that's actually why I wanted to talk about this. Yeah. So this particular incident... I can hear the hobby horse neighing yeah. in the background. <laughs> <laughs> yep. We're getting up to full gallop now. So this is this it was not a particularly serious incident, yep. but it is just the latest not particularly serious incident mm. that we have seen on Pipey, which resembles the similar incidents that we've seen on the PHP repositories, which resembles incidents we've seen on the NPM repositories, which resembles incidents we have seen on Linux repositories. Are you getting the idea that there may be a bit of a problem here? Yes, I'm yeah. seeing it. I'm you seeing should it. let Ruby off light there. <laughs> I could have gone on. I could yeah. have gone on. I could have mentioned... Yeah every kind of uh, open source language. I could also have mentioned um, bits of infrastructure, things like Docker and uh, uh, Linux's. Uh, it, this is now part of the way that open source mm. software is developed. Um, the use of these sort of giant online repositories and build systems that pull in code from uh, all sorts of places on the internet and often pulling in code from bits of the internet, which then themselves pull in code from bits of the internet, which then themselves pull in code from bits of the internet, from the internet. And you look at that situation, you think, well, what could go wrong? You know, imagine if the, uh, imagine if this particular uh, date utils package uh, had stayed on there a little bit longer or had been included in uh, some other project that was very popular you know, all it takes is one developer to make a mistake and include that library in their package, which other people then download, um, and you've got a serious problem. Mm. Um, and in fact, other people don't have to then go and download. If someone gets malware into a, a repository that's already there, that, that is depended upon by 20 other projects, whenever any of those projects do an automatic update, yes. they'll automatically update those dependencies. So it's not like that you actually have to go out accidentally stumble across the updated malware-containing repository. Anything in that chain could do it for you as part of you trying to improve the security of all the other stuff you've got. Yes, and that's a, it's a great illustration of the fact that this is this is a supply chain attack, 
And normally when we talk about supply chain attacks, we're thinking about, okay, well, you know, somebody's hacked a business and they've yeah. changed the source code mm -hmm. or something like that. But actually for lots and lots of businesses and lots and lots of projects, this is where the source code is kept. Mm. And it's not there. even a chain, is it, in this case? It's more like a tree or, yeah, a, or yeah. a giant web. And of, if you of want interconnections. to, if you want a clue about what can go wrong, um, the best example that I can find uh, is actually something called uh, pad, uh, left pad. So left pad is a very very small eleven line uh, code library, which is extremely popular. Now this was on the Node Package Manager repository back in 2016. Um, and the software author, a guy called Aza Kasulu, decided that he no longer wanted it to be on the uh, in the NPM repository. And that was his decision. He had a bit of a legal dispute over the name of one of his other modules. He had 250 uh, packages on this repository, and he decided, do you know what? I don't like the way that NPM are behaving. I'm going to pull all of my packages. One of them was this very simple library, and it turns out that that library was included in absolutely everything. Gosh. So it was included in all sorts of other projects, not least the React JavaScript library, which is like the kind of hip, cool kid on the block in terms of uh, JavaScript. So one morning, all these developers woke up and all of their builds for all of their projects just failed because of the absence of this library. Um, so, And it was just to help you format text nicely. Yes, it, was, it, it, it does almost important. nothing. It just pads a, yeah. a string of characters with zeros to, to make that string a, a, a fixed length. Uh, it's the kind of thing that programmers would probably have programmed themselves. It's the sort of mundane thing that you need to do in computer programs over and over again in different computer programs. It's it's mildly convenient that somebody has written a routine to do that for you. In the old days, you'd have written it yourself and you'd mm. had your own library that you pulled in. And, and ironically, they're linking to the live version on the internet as opposed to just storing it locally so that if in any of these libraries a security issue is identified it will then get updated in their live project without them having to do anything. Well, in this case, actually, they have their own copy offline. So typically these things are used in build processes. So rather than it being... That's a whole other can of work. Okay. So yes, there's a, there's a, there's a backdoor in lots and lots of websites where they're pulling in third-party code in runtime. What you often see with these systems is they're, they're uh, pulled in at build time. Okay. So you would say, okay... Uh, I've got right in as much as the build system is kind of hooked up live. So the build system might update itself for building the stuff that goes on your website. Well, there, there's a moment where you say, I want to update, you know, I want, uh, let, let's say somebody updates one of their bits of code you depend on, uh, and then that has dependencies and they need to be updated to the latest version and they have dependencies and they need to be updated to the latest version. It doesn't take very much for anybody in your anybody in your supply chain to change something, for you to end up having to change quite a lot of software. So the left so, pad thing was a denial of service attack, but if that guy wasn't a decent chap and he decided to take a vengeance on NPM, for example, then he could actually just have changed his left pad code to be malware and everyone would have picked that up instead. Exactly. Exactly. And that's why it's a warning shot. And actually, there are all kinds of canaries in the coal mine in the left, left pad story. So the, the first one is that the reason that he decided to pull the library was because he got into a dispute over the name of one of his other libraries, which was called Kick. So the Kick social media, uh, social network mm. decided they wanted to create their own module on the NPM repository. Uh, because they had that name trademarked, 
uh, they said to the developer who was using the kick name, we would like to use that name. He said, no, I'm not going to let you do that. And the maintainers of the NPM repository themselves took control of the name and gave it to the trademark holder. And so when he realised he couldn't, that he wasn't as in control of things as he thought he was, that's when he decided to take his toys and go elsewhere. Right. And the response to him removing left pad was that the NPM staff then resurrected an older version and reinstated it. So again, the developer didn't have nearly as much control over what was going on in their name on that repository as they thought they, they did. Wow. Now, it was it was a good resolution in terms of NPM users, um, but there's a lot of teachable moments there. So we're running out of time, Mark. Um, not like you to overrun. How did that happen? Uh, I know, right? It's your hobby horse. Um <laughs> yeah, let's blame the hobby horse. <laughs> yeah. Um, how can we prevent something like this from happening? Um, I'm not sure that you can. I think there are measures that you can take to make it less likely. So I guess the question is, what can you do as a developer if you're relying on those external repositories? And the first thing I would say is reduce your dependencies. Right. It, it's very easy to find yourself... Uh, relying on somebody else's code to do trivial jobs like mm. left pad. And uh, funnily enough, we went through this process with Naked Security not very long ago mm. of actually just going through and going, how much of this stuff do we actually need? Because obviously the more stuff you have, the bigger the attack surface. Mm. It's an old lesson, but it's still true. And the other thing is you have to remember who is responsible for that code. If you're saying this code is is good to ship, uh, or you're saying that this code is good to go on our website, then you are responsible for that. Mm. And that means that you've got to review it. You've got to know what you're publishing in your name or in the name of your employer. And that's another great reason for reducing your dependencies because somebody's got to look at that code sooner or later. Cool. Thank you, everyone. And thanks, Alice, for her podcast production and support. And just uh, generally in life. Snappy dress and a snappy dress and keeping the hobby horse on the track. Finger and her enormous iPhone and her ergonomic mouse. <laughs> and the cottage pie and two packets of crisps that she chomped her way through. <laughs> Mark, where can we find you on social media? You can find me at Mark Stockley on Twitter and you can find me at Internet of Hens. Peter? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Alt Shift Print Screen. Mar- uh, Doug? <laughs> I am at Duck Blog on Twitter and at P. Ducklin on Instagram. And I'm at Anna Brady on Twitter and we are at Naked Security on Twitter and Instagram. You can find us on Facebook. But it's Facebook. Facebook. <laughs> Double yes. Typo Scotty. <laughs> you can find us on Facebook by searching <laughs> Naked Security where we do weekly Facebook live videos and we also have a brand spanking new YouTube channel where Duck's latest series of What to Do When has just gone live. We'll be back next week with our final show of the year, so make sure you listen in for some festive cheer. Well, Stockley's here, so probably not much, <laughs> just much cheer. Festive. Just some festive. Festive moodiness. <laughs> if you like the new podcast, please rate and review it. You can tweet us at Naked Security with your suggestions or questions for the podcast, or you can email us at tips at sophos.com. And until next time, stay, stay secure. secure.